1: thank you Ben on this memorial day i have a very special guest uh, special in many reasons for many reasons one is he was my boss for 40 years and i owe a great deal of gratitude to him and this would be david orick the one you guys know mostly by his vacuum cleaner company so we're here in mississippi popular mississippi where it is about the same 95 degrees it's a beautiful place, and I'm in David's office. Wow. And David Ork, welcome to Courage to Hope.
2: Well, thank you very much. Nice to be with you. And again, Tony, many years that we've been to, together, actually. And uh, so it's a pleasure being here with
1: you. It's a long time, since 1978.
2: Yeah, that is a long time. And in uh, the meantime, as you mentioned, but uh, I'm I'm going to be 99. In about two months, no sir, barring the unforeseen, and uh, it's kind of remarkable. But if if I forget a few things, I hope you'll understand.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. we we're, we're gonna get. <laughs> We're going to give you lots of mulligans if necessary. Don't worry about it. No worries at all
0: on that. We're just absolutely honored to have you on WMEX right now, Mr. Oregon. I got to tell you, uh, I remember the commercials. I remember the bowling ball. I remember all of it. So you are well ingrained in my memory. And I think I can speak for a lot of our listeners, all of our memories for all time. So thank you very much for that.
1: Well, thank
2: you. And uh, it been a lot of experience I've had, and, and I'm uh, glad to be here. Getting old is not for sissies, by the way. So uh, <laughs> anyway,
1: I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I can be around still. And uh, David's pr- proud to say that he's never needed, a, never went in the hospital a single day other than to get cataracts removed. Other than that, he is a hundred percent surgery free. Wow, which is amazing because I am way ahead of him already, and I'm only seventy-four. So, um, <laughs> you know, because it's Memorial Day, I was looking to find a a good World War II veteran because this is I always look at Memorial Day for World War II, even though it goes back to the to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But um, in my lifetime, World War II was the biggest, the big one. It wasn't, you know, as I was I was being born right after. Um, So we have fewer and fewer World War II veterans and that's why David did the Pacific Front. But i like to ask him a few things. He grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, Apparently I understand his father uh, and mother lived in Manitoba and they moved to Duluth because they wanted to get warm. It was too cold up there in Manitoba. um, (laughs) It's cold in Minnesota. That's correct. And um, and David had this love for for airplanes. So, what was your first experience well, that really turned you uh, on to
2: the airplanes? Uh, I've always loved airplanes for some reason or other. When I was just a young kid, I mean, i uh, say about uh, maybe ten years old. My dad who was not a was not a pilot, but uh, I told him I would like to take a ride in an airplane. So, at that time, again in Duluth, it was cold in the winter, and this was winter. And he took me for a ride in a a, a tri-motor Ford uh, airplane flying off of Lake Superior uh, which was solid ice in the winter and we used the uh, skis around the airplane. So my first ride in an airplane was in a seaplane on skis because it was a frozen lake and uh, I had I never stopped enjoying my love of airplanes.
0: That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yes. And
1: that's, you know, this is what happens when you very young certain things become very impressionable. So David, now when you were about 16, great Britain had entered the war with Germany and you heard about a, a, a thing called the Lend-Lease program. Can you explain what that is?
2: Uh, yeah, uh, they, um, I was uh, interested, in, I was, of course, very young, uh, but in my teens, I don't remember exactly what year, but uh, before we entered the war, uh, we were, we had a program called Lend Lease, in which we were lending, presumably, airplanes and other equipment to Britain, who was at war with Germany, and um uh, they couldn't use uh, uh, military personnel to fly those airplanes and so on, because that would be an active engagement in the war. And we were not at war, but we were helping or trying to help at least uh, Britain. And, and they were at war. And uh, so I ended a, a, a private program at that time, having not to do with the US government, but I wanted to get a license. Uh, so I could get into that program. And I did graduate from this flight school uh, before World War II, and I was preparing to to get into the program of ferrying airplanes to Europe. Well, as it turns out, at about that time uh, was when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, and that set us to war with Japan, and Japan and Germany were allies, and there and then Germany declared war on us Uh, that was the excuse that they needed so uh, that's how we got how we got into the war and how I I was a little bit ahead of my time Um, but uh, anyway shortly thereafter and I can't remember exactly the timing but uh, I uh, the program was abandoned by the government because it was no longer necessary and
1: I uh, Uh, enlisted in the Army Air Force. Well, I guess we'll just have to remind everybody we're talking 82 years ago. Yeah. So that's longer than most people are alive. So we're talking 82 years ago. So were you a trained pilot when you went into the Army Air Corps? I was,
2: I had a pilot's license before I went in. And uh, it was a a very preliminary training and so on. But I, I never I never got to use it uh, in that particular program because shortly after uh, that is, is when uh, uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and uh, Germany then, or that is to say, uh, um, Britain, correction, Germany then declared war on us. Uh, They'd been looking for an excuse and this gave it to them that the fact that we Bomb their ally, Pearl Harbor after they attacked us.
1: So, did you enlist
2: right away? Uh, I don't think it was right away. It was uh, it was in that period. I, I I don't recall the exact timing of it, but it was a, approximately the same time.
1: Uh, so. Uh, so you went they they ship when you did enlist, they sent you off to the Army Air Corps like boot camp.
2: For training.
1: Um, well, yes, they had a training program and, uh, I got into that
2: and, uh, and of course that was prolonged. And after I got into that, um, and as time went along, why, uh, it, it appeared as though the, the fastest way for me to get into active, uh, engagement, uh, was to, to seek out the navigation program, uh, which I did. Uh, and so uh, ultimately, I became a navigator and so on, and uh,
1: uh, was then involved in the in the air Corps. So in the Air Corps as a navigator, what style of planes were you flying? Well, we, we trained
2: in the B seventeens and b twenty fours. but ultimately, uh, what I got into it, which was quite new at that time, was the B-29. The B? I remember I was over in Bo- back in, uh, I was in Baton Rouge, not Baton Rouge, Boca Raton. I was in Boca Raton in a training program and, and uh, on the, we were flying the B-17s and B-24s. And uh, we were getting ready for an early morning training mission. And I was taxiing out and uh, this enormous airplane flew in and landed It was the first B-29 I had ever seen. In fact, that was true of most people at that time. And so uh, one thing led to the other, and and then I got involved in the B-29
1: program.
0: Quick quick question.
1: The B-29 was... Go ahead, Ben.
0: I was just going to say, quick question. When you first laid eyes on the B-29, was it love at first sight, or was it one of those jaw-dropping moments for you and the boys?
2: Well... Uh, It was a jaw-dropping moment to be be frank (laughs) about it. And, of course, at that particular moment, we didn't know that some of us would be in that airplane or one like it. And so uh, it was exciting because it was unusual. It was much bigger than a B-24 or B-17, which was at that time the biggest uh, bombers we had. And uh, so it it was exciting, to say the least. And I was thrilled. I don't remember the particulars, but uh, ultimately, I got into that B-29 program and got further training in that airplane. And it was, uh, it was it was very exciting at that time.
1: How long did it roughly, how long was it like when you started training with that, did you have to learn a whole lot of new things? Or yeah, you case? had to learn a
2: whole lot of new things and so on.
1: I don't know exactly how
2: long it took, uh, I would guess, Maybe uh, uh, a year, but I, I don't know that exact. It, the- it was quite complex because uh, in navigation at that time and the flying the ocean, uh, we used celestial navigation, which is navigating by the by the stars, and uh, that was a new <laughs> a new a new taste really, you might say. It was pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, I don't want
1: to ask you, but. Uh- Navigating by the stars, how do you do that in the daytime? Is that, is that uh, well, a stupid question? You, that's a very good question, by <laughs> the way. Uh,
2: and of course, there are no stars to get, navigate from during the day. But that was the, the principles. Uh, we were flying over water uh, most of the most missions, well, all of the missions actually, from uh, Saipan. Which was where we were based. We were flying over the ocean, and uh, during the day we used uh, other uh, navigation. But there were no landmarks. I mean, it was
1: it was a pretty touch and go kind of deal. Yeah, I would say. So, did you actually fly the B twenty nine that they, you were going to use as your plane for the missions you went on? I was didn't.
2: The- I didn't physically fly because that was not my job uh um i i did navigating and uh also radar uh we had the first radar and we used that uh during the day
1: and so on but we we had the most sophisticated equipment at that time what i meant to say is did they send you to saipan on a b-29 or did you yes they did they did we did went uh i think from
2: san francisco or thereabouts And flew to uh, Hawaii uh, with, uh, of course, a full crew. And uh, then from Hawaii, there was one other island that we stopped at. And then Saipan, and then uh, then Guam. And
1: after that, uh, uh, Saipan. For those that don't know, Saipan is a small island just north of Guam. And uh, today, it's actually where all the honeymooners from Japan go. It's full of luxury hotels.
2: Is that yeah, right? Yeah,
1: it's for luxury hotels on the beach, and and that's the big place. It's kind of like the the Hawaii of Japan. Yeah. You know, if they don't go to Jap- to Hawaii; they go to Saipan to enjoy their honeymoon. Well, we flew off of, of that, and uh, it was uh, a long
2: ride uh, before we captured uh, Iwo Jima uh we it was about a 16 hour flight and uh at, that was a, a long haul and uh, and of course we were carrying bombs at that time because that was the purpose of our mission is to bomb targets in Japan
1: so 16 hours from Saipan to to, 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 to Japan, Japan, Japan and back well you, know, you had to have a lot of fuel carrying. On we that had to
2: we had to carry a lot of fuel and uh, so on. It was a big airplane and it was designed for that kind of flying. Uh, up to that time,
1: we didn't we didn't have an
2: airplane that could do that.
1: What altitude would you get to? Normally around thirty five thousand. So the smaller planes that Japan might send after you, they wouldn't be able to reach that, would they? Uh, in Japan, yeah, well, they might have had some.
2: Some fighters that could uh, get up there, but uh, it was a it was a pretty high. But generally speaking, we drop down uh, to a somewhat lower altitude to, to, to drop our bombs, and uh, then we would turn around and go back to Saipan or wherever.
1: So, how um, many bombs would be on a plane?
2: Ah, gosh, I don't, I don't remember that. It was a big load, I can tell you. I mean, you. like
1: fifty or a hundred, or
2: well, uh, I don't want to speculate because I don't remember exactly. Okay, but it was, it was a big load, it was, and it was a bigger load than any other airplane
1: at that time could haul.
0: Definitely enough I heard to make once you. There was uh, a
1: bomb that didn't deploy. A big part. Was there one once that didn't go out that when the thing opened? Well, yes. Uh, occasionally you had a, a bomb that hung up
2: and we've had, had that experience. A bomb that hung up in the bay, in the, uh, uh, bomb bay uh, and uh, you couldn't land with a bomb in that hanging in that position because it would explode. And uh, the only way that you couldn't, and you couldn't fly very well because you can't close the bomb bay with that, if you've got a bomb hanging precariously. so uh, We had uh, one of the boys went back had to take off his parachute and everything and to loosen that bomb and it dropped and uh, we managed back safely.
0: Did you but, say take uh, his parachute off before handling that situation?
2: Well, it, it, yes. Uh, uh, if you were going to crawl in a bomb bay an open bomb bay you, you couldn't have stuff hanging off of you it was pretty tight so it, it was uh, it was an experience <laughs> I don't recommend it by the way
0: yeah. I was gonna say yikes a Rooney yeah well
1: this part of the out of the, the whole point of having mr. Oric on here today is for people to understand what these men these veterans had to go through to do their missions and to do what they had to do to protect us. There's Americans. I mean, did you ever go in that bay or whatever you call it? Bombay?
2: Oh, yeah. But that was uh, in that particular endeavor, there was one of the smaller guys in the plane. Uh, got to do that. We, we, he was <laughs> elected. <laughs> anyway, the uh, stuff happens. And of course, you've got no way to go down and uh, land and have it repaired and then carry on. I mean, you, you've got to be sure that you complete your mission and get back to your where you came from.
1: Well, you'd run out of fuel if you didn't, right?
2: You, you would if you just fooled around. You There you, uh, was nothing to spare and so on. And, of course, later on when we captured Iwo Jima, uh, that shortened our mission somewhat in that we could land there on the way back, which was a shorter distance from there, to Saipan, so that saved us uh, a little time. We could increase our load. Uh, I see, and
1: you'd have more fuel and be able to, you wouldn't need as much fuel, so you'd be able to- We didn't need as much fuel, so we carried more bombs. Okay, and what what was the atmosphere like in the plane when you're flying to your mission?
2: Well, uh, everybody's got a job to do, and and you know that uh, you're not gonna be welcomed when you get there. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, you're nervous, but uh, somehow or other, uh, I think everybody felt uh, uh, we're going to make it. The other guy may not, but we will. So of course that was ridiculous. But anyway, yeah. whatever yes. works, just call me nerves. It's a nervous. Yes. It's, it's a nervous thing. Anybody says that they weren't, they weren't uptight is probably uh, not
1: telling the truth. Yeah, I can assure you, and and. You know, like like a basketball team. Like right now, everybody back in Boston's thinking about the Celtics, and it's all about teamwork. And with with this, with the eight guys on the plane, or seven or eight, that uh, you had yeah. To, uh, I think actually 11. 11, So you all had to work in harmony. I mean, there was yeah. no. I don't like this guy. I don't like that guy. You, oh, know, no, that. you better, you better really like the pilots. Yeah.
2: So uh, it was. Uh, it was interesting, I, and I guess "interesting" is not the word, but it was a it was a serious serious business, oh. and uh, not making it was a possibility always,
1: or being shot down by a, a fighter. So, so uh, there was an there was one of the gentlemen on the plane with you. and It was basically the same crew all the time, right? Yeah, it was the same crew. And then oh, you-
2: yes. Uh, uh, one uh, crew member uh, received a, a phone guy call. by the name of Arnold Spitz. and uh, Long after the war, I, I got a, a call from a fellow named Spitz on the telephone. I was working at that time. It was long after the war. And I said, Spitz, I said, "We." We had a fellow on the plane that, by that name. Did he any, any relationship? He said, yes, that was my father. Now, Spitz is the champion sh- swimmer. Right. And he's yeah. still around,
1: I may add. Oh, yeah. He won seven or eight gold medals. Yeah. But that was his, his dad. And his dad, what What did his dad do on the plane? He was. I think he was a uh, a gunner. A gunner. So, so the thing is, like, did you ever have a flight that you almost didn't make it back or was every Well,
2: that was always a, a chance, you know. I uh, We we may have had some, I don't remember any particular thing, but we always made it back. That's the key thing. We may have had some problems which would not be uncommon in an airplane that size, that new,
1: and uh, so on. Uh, The point is that if you didn't make it back, there'd be no Mark Spitz who would have won seven or eight gold medals, and there would have been no auric vacuum cleaner in your closet right now. I guess not. (laughs) Don't forego those gold medals just to have my, uh,
2: to be back. (laughs) That's right. I'm sure everybody else felt that way.
1: Oh, definitely. How long were you in the Pacific?
2: Oh, uh, i I would guess a, a year or so that I would pop in. So mm-hmm. you didn't
1: stay until the end of the war, or was that? I uh, well, yes. Uh, that was. We, we did. Okay, sometime around nineteen forty-five or late forty-four. I think it was. Uh, I think it was forty-seven, but I'm not
2: sure.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was so, going. I was going to ask uh, Tony if I can. Uh, obviously, over in the Pacific Theater, do you recall? what the feeling was, what the vibe was amongst anybody that you could hear from around the Normandy D-Day events, of course, on the other side of the map. But I'm sure you guys heard all about it at some point.
2: Yeah, we, oh yeah, we heard all about it. It it was a a very nervous period. And uh, frankly, uh, the, the people that, uh, aren't, aren't concerned about what's going on right now uh, with Russia and all that? They have a right to be concerned because it doesn't take much of, uh, to trigger something. And it, it's, it's uh, to me, it's very worrisome. Uh, I don't know where this is going, but it isn't. It doesn't look good to me to, to have this going on as it is particularly with that uh, uh, Russian uh, president is uh, oh well. Never what wrong. we were talking
1: about was how they're just bombing certain cities to smithereens, so what's the point? There's nothing to take over because there'd be nothing there, there's no buildings, and the factories are gone, yeah. and the schools are gone, the hospitals are gone. They're blowing up everything and killing everyone, no exceptions that
2: they can lay their hands on. It's it's terrible. I. And it's the sort
1: of thing that can lead to places we don't want to be. Yeah, much worse thing. So my next question was, how do you feel today about young Americans and their understanding of what it's like to serve our country? Well, uh, I, I think the
2: people there who are fighting for their life are very brave and they're, they're doing all they can. Whether they'll survive, I don't know. There'll be thousands of restaurants killed and thousands of the Ukrainian too, so uh, it's uh, it's a very worrisome period to me. A lot of people just don't get the idea, and I, I, maybe it's just as well. But I'm a warrior when it comes to stuff like that. Well, you've had experience and you've been there, and yeah, I've, I've had the experience. But I, I hate to let, live life with all your experiences. You know, anyway, that's just. It's a tough thing, and I, uh, I am concerned about it very much so. And I feel most certainly for those people who are everything they have, and there was no provocation whatsoever for, for him to you know, the Russian to take invade that country. They didn't pose a the threat. they were threatening, they weren't doing anything that was bad and say. So it's, it just doesn't make sense. No. and it's a, and to me, it's something we all uh, could be concerned about because it doesn't lead in a nice direction. Mm.
1: Well, so going back to our veterans for today, um, what do you think we should be doing? Be doing to improve what we do for our veterans?
2: Well, yeah. I, I I I can't say that I know everything that we do or we don't do, but most certainly uh, we're. I think we're doing a good job in general with veterans. I think we could do more. Someone who spends, who, who risks his life uh, for the rest of us, deserves every every bit of help that we can give them when they, when they come back and if they come back. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I am not in a position to say what we should or shouldn't do, but I, to my way of thinking, the men who will give their life for the rest of us have to
1: be in every way rewarded. Well, that's what I feel too. And, Absolutely. and when I see people, they always say they can get on the plane first and we're going to stand up for them and everything. And then when the veterans administration doesn't get properly funded, yeah. something and they put somebody in charge that that's some political hack doesn't that's know right. what they're doing. I, I it infuriates me. I think we we need to do way more for our veterans and it should be, uh, it it should be an honor and it should be, you know.
2: That's right. I think there's more that we can do and more that we should do. Uh, And uh, these men are entitled to all the help and all the rewards that we can give them. If they're willing to risk their life for us, what are we willing to do for them?
1: And I think we all know the answer to that one. Well said. That's right. Yeah. Back in the, when this when the war was over, and they were having ticker take parades and that sort of thing. Did you ever take advantage of any of that, or did you go on any of those soldier return parties? Or?
2: Uh, you say did I? take Yes. That? No, I don't think I did because the guys my age, uh, their party is to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> And so uh, I'm not I'm I'm not much for that. Maybe others
1: are, but I'm not. And uh, and uh, well, how about the GI Bill or any of those things? Did you participate with any of that? It was what I got. The GI Bill and like they built Levittown and they oh, did all these things. You know. Well,
2: I, as a contributor, I, I think I've done my share.
1: You were eligible for all these different programs. Yeah.
2: Well i I, uh, I think this in the final analysis we are so fortunate to be in this wonderful country. I never can uh, and I appreciate it more now than I did and I always did but I, I, now I just I realize how lucky we are and uh, that we live in this country the opportunities afforded us uh, and I'm a, a been successful at in my work uh, here, and I I would say it's, it's unlikely that that would happen in any, any other country. Wow. If I, I, if,
0: if I could, real quick, Tony, if you don't mind. Uh, Mr. Orr, we have, uh, the, the VA has services, and there's all kinds of other programs that we talk about here on the station constantly, but the number one thing we hear in response is, and especially from a lot of the old-timers, I don't want to take any of those services away from someone else. I, I I don't want to take anything and potentially leave somebody else with something. Now, that's something we hear over and over again. What would you say to your fellow veterans who are still on that stance of I don't want to take from someone else when we know full well now that there are literally just piles of services just by their serving they paid in full for them? Would you say to them to help Get them to realize that.
2: Well, I don't pretend to be an expert on that, but uh, I am one hundred percent in favor of doing everything we can for better. If someone who's willing to risk their life uh, for us deserves everything that we can do for them, and we need that. And when a push comes to shove, somebody's got to pick up that rifle or whatever and, uh, and take care of the opposition. And that's a very dangerous business. And I hope that people realize how much these men give of themselves and the risks they take. Uh, I for one, as a veteran, I'm proud that I am a veteran. And I'm grateful for all the things that this country gives and provides for all of us well and I hope that folks realize that.
1: When you came back from the war, you would break to work at RCA, did you not? Uh,
2: well, you no, know, I came back and uh, the government had a, at that time a, a program of a training of a free college education, uh, I forget what the program was called, but anyway, you gotta, if you want to go to college, the government would pay. And almost every smart guy that I know of took advantage of it, except that I know one that didn't, and that was me. <laughs> I, uh, I felt as though I, I had to make a living some kind of way. didn't have anything. And so I, uh, I went to work, and, and, uh, and as luck would have it, I, m- I met with uh, presidents of, the, of, of big companies and so on in New York. And I have actually had the pleasure or the privilege of meeting with Ronald Reagan, then President of the United States, in the White House, in his Oval Office. And uh, what a great honor and thrill that was. So uh, I've uh, personally, I've been very
1: fortunate and I'm grateful for that. So I, I know the story a little bit, though. You were working for RCA later on and out of the RCA um, came the Oric Vacuum.
2: Yeah, to, to well, clean. I worked
1: for uh, RCA. I ran the RCA wholesale distributorship
2: in New York City uh, for several years. And uh, I guess when I was, uh, I don't know, 40s, I decided I wanted to do something for myself. And I I resigned a very good job and so on. And I uh, got into the vacuum cleaner business. And... Uh, had a a really big success with that. It was a a darn good product. We made them first in Germany and Ireland, and then had a big factory in Southern Mississippi. And uh, we uh, had, a well, there's still millions of auric vacuum cleaners around the country and people rave about it. A woman said to me recently, And she recognized me on the street because I used to do the commercials. And she said, uh, are you David Oric?" I said, yeah. She said, uh, well, I have an Oric vacuum cleaner. I said, how long have you had it? Well, she said, for 40 years. I said, 40 years? Why don't you get a new one? She said, why? This one works fine. You know, it's, uh, when you have that kind of uh, reception, On a product, it's it's, it's gratifying, say the
0: least. Pretty good problem to have, right? Yeah.
1: So I I would say that David's work with the auric vacuums has improved hundreds of other people's lives, and that's made a big difference in my own life. uh, With What I learned from David over 40 years um, is stay the course. That's the number one thing, is stay the course. And when you stay the course you beat Miami, you know, that's what we found out last night. So uh, Al Horford was one of those guys that stayed the course, you know, David Orrick stayed the course. And I, you know, a lot of what I, I have in my own life and things that I've learned and able to build my business and able to take over the radio station, if it wasn't for David Orrick, I couldn't have done that. And so I'm very grateful for David and everything that he's done, and very grateful for all the things that he's done indirectly through my fam from my family and elsewhere. Um, it's very, very gratifying for him to see all the success stories and all the people who have gone off and done other things, but started with him in sales or in business. Mm-hmm. Now, great. Because and David sold the company a while back, actually 2003 is my memory, and. Um, you know, he didn't stop though. David didn't like the idea of retirement, so tell us about how you got in the candle business.
2: Well, I, I just kind of stumbled in. I believe that people should work, and I and if you can avoid retirement uh, and, and sitting around, you'll likely live longer. And so I think that you should work. And now, if it's if you're not well and so on, that's another story. But if you can. I believe in working and uh, so I, uh, all I can say is that in my experience, such as it is, I came from a small town in northern Minnesota and then spent much of my business life in New York City and elsewhere. Um, this is a country you can do things and you can get rewarded and there's a lot of places elsewhere. Where no matter what you do, you stand still. And I, uh, but that's not true in America. And people should recognize that and, and do their best. And I say,
1: don't retire.
2: <laughs> you know? I, I
1: remember on a cruise to Alaska once, somebody introduced their father and they said he was retired. And David asked him how old he was. And the guy said he was 63. And he was like, dumbfounded. 63? You're retired? You know, I thought retiring was when you're in the box. Yeah. And you don't look like you're ready for any box, you know. So mm-hmm. I was, I knew then. But again, going back to the candles, uh, I know my wife's a big fan of your candles. We get a case about every three or four months. Yeah. You know, those nice well, so tell us about the candles. Well, I bought a uh, candle
2: business for sale. And, uh, and I, I bought it over in the, North Carolina, and we manufacture candles, 100% made in the USA, uh, and uh, no uh, materials that are not uh, healthy and so on, and that, that cannot be said in a lot of the Chinese stuff. Uh, but anyway, uh, I got the candle business, it's a new thing, and uh, I'm I'm enjoying it. It's a different kind of a business and so on, and I've got... A, quite a number of people who are very skillful and uh and uh, I, uh, I i don't have much time left i don't think but uh, they do and and if this could provide a good business job for them uh, that's my hope so we're making wonderful candles and if anybody's interested in the candle then you can't do better than an orange
1: candle is it auriccandle.com, or what's the website? You know what
2: uh, yeah, it's, yeah, you can look it up. It's on the website. You can buy it on that, and it's a good value. I mean, they, uh, they last longer, burn cleaner,
1: and are more fragrant. So I was going to say, I took the tour of the candle factory about five years ago. And one thing I was impressed with is there's two independent labs within the building, and you don't want to just burn anything because you don't know those fumes, people are going to be burning them. So one lab checks the other lab and the other lab checks that lab to make sure that they're both doing their job so that everything that goes out of that factory is perfectly safe, long lasting. And, you know, and you can have them so that they, they, there's no smokes, are smokeless candles. Yeah. You can, you know, there's a variety of different flavors. There's even one that smells like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. So I remember yeah, that. No it's way. It's a good product and a lot of satisfaction.
0: How did you capture the scent of a donkey's? It doesn't even make sense. I love it. Yeah. It,
1: yeah. Well, I, 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 I got one of them. So I tried it and it's right. It smells like going into a Dunkin Donuts place, but I don't know who wants that. I'd rather have a place that smells like some certain type of flowers that I like the best, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, so, um, so what I wanted to do today was have a nice um, visit with Mr. Oric and talk about what it's really like to be in World War II and really, really be an active veteran who's at um, military service and seen battle and survived to talk about it. And, and I give, try to get the feel for it. As some of you know, about four weeks ago, I went to Normandy and I saw the, the beaches that our American soldiers landed on and the British soldiers and the Canadian soldiers and some of the French soldiers that were over in England, building up a force to come back to France. And it was overwhelming. I had no idea that it was so large. I had no idea how dangerous it was. I had no idea how many men lost their lives that day and how many men didn't. And what they had to go through, just landing was one thing. Once they landed, they had to go to one city after the next city, after the next city. And you, you know, you take a two-hour train ride just to get to Paris at 100 miles, 150 miles an hour. These guys walked it. They walked it and had to fight their way there and never knew where the fight was going to be. Then once they got Paris and they took Paris back, that was was like one-tenth of the way. Now you got to go to Brussels, you got to go to Holland and you eventually work your way to Munich and Berlin. And that was a long walk. I can tell you, I've in the train ride at 150 miles an hour and it takes four and a half hours. So think about walking it. And a part of that was in the winter time. So it was not an easy job. And the sacrifice that the men made, they, they, what they did and the nurses, the females that were involved too, and, and everybody on every level, what it took, and think about the massive amount of food, fuel, our organization. President Eisenhower, who was the commanding general at the time, he did so much for, for the world that during those three or four months organizing the, his, his main officers in charge, you know, like General Patton and so forth, what they all had to do in Montgomery, and he had to take the whole thing and put it all in, and they had to time it just right so that they landed on the beach on a certain day. And and it turned out that it was smoky, foggy, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, you know. but they still did it and they still were successful. And because of that, we're not speaking German today. So I, I think we need to really salute our veterans anytime we see them and praise them and tell them how much we appreciate everything they've done and then go one step further and make sure our politicians are taking some of that defense money and putting it into the Veterans Administration hospitals and programs because we have too many of them that we're losing that are coming back addicted. And that's the big thing that I'm I'm very well aware of. We don't want these people to be, you know, living on the street because they got an addiction problem and they can't hold a job. They need to be in an addiction center. They need to be treated properly. These people are, are veterans and they're, and they got this way because they were out there protecting us. And that's the thing I can't emphasize more that we need to get out. And we need to make sure that we salute our veterans, not only today on Memorial Day, but each and every day. And if you're ever out in a cemetery and you see one of the veterans' flags blown out of its holter, hol, you know, hol, holster or anything, there on the ground, pick it up and put it back where it belongs because that's what you need to do, because that person did a lot lot more for us than we'll ever do for them.
0: That's right. Well said,
1: Tony. Yeah, this is Uncle Tony. And I'll tell you that this is a courage to hope. And I hope you appreciate David Orrick today. He's 99. I'm coming back on his 100th birthday. So we can do more. We can do this again on another interview because this guy is going to be here. I can assure you of that. Nice. He's, he's hanging in there, and he's smart as they come. Never misses a beat. Well, that's nice, Tony. I appreciate your kind <laughs> words.
2: And uh, I wish all of our listeners uh, have a great day and appreciate those who have given so much.
1: Thank you, Mr. Dorick I can't tell you how pleased I am to have you on as a uh, as a guest. This has been a great, great honor for us, and we really appreciate it.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Uncle Tony, on behalf of all of us here at WMEX, Mr. Oric, thank you very much for your service, sir, and everything you've done for everybody that you have and everybody that you will. We appreciate you both more than you will ever know. And to all of our veterans out there just the same, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Tony LaGreca, Mr. David Orr and all of us here at WMEX, thank you for tuning into the Courage to Hope. We'll see you next time.